0: I actually realised I did care about what I would amount to, so I had like a, some would say it's almost like self-pity, but it was like a real sadness that I'd now let everybody down. Well, I just assumed that I'd destroyed my life at that moment.
1: Imagine one punch, one moment that lasted just a few seconds, changing your life forever, and taking the life of another.
2: Jacob Dunn was a teenager from an estate called the Meadows in Nottingham, in the middle of England, without many prospects and growing up being laden with expectations that he'd never amount to anything. He got involved in gang warfare that was common between
1: rival estates. Then one night, he did a stupid but awful thing. He punched a man, unprovoked. The man fell and, a week later, died from his injuries. That man was James Hodkinson. I don't
2: say too much about James in the interview because regardless of what they've done in their life, I rarely invite people onto the podcast to grill them and publicly shame them. Jacob has turned his life around and even become friendly with his victim's parents through something called restorative justice in which he now works. That said, James never had a chance to continue his life. This is a burden Jacob will carry with him for the rest of his life and James's parents will never truly know peace. James was a 28-year-old trainee paramedic whose life was cut short tragically. Jacob served 14 months of a 30-month sentence for manslaughter before being able to get on with his life. I do find Jacob very friendly and likeable and also thoughtful and sad. I am a believer that we are products of both our genes and our environments and that in which Jacob grew up was punishing and barren. He wrote a book called Right from Wrong documenting his early life and the effects of the punch. If James's parents can give Jacob another chance perhaps we can too. I stupidly didn't click the right microphone for this one so my voice is an absolute horror. Fortunately I'm not the one doing most of the speaking. But still, it made me cringe when I realized it's all echoey and horrible. Uh, It was my computer laptop that was picking up the sound for the recording. So I had the microphone in front of my face for no reason. Sorry about that, guys. In any case, I hope you enjoy the episode. I thought it made for fascinating listening. You're on the edge of restorative justice and a punch that killed a man with Jacob Dunn. Jacob, how are you doing today? You just had a whole day of work. You feeling happy? you're Feeling tired? How are you doing?
0: <laughs> to be honest, I'm feeling knackered.
2: Got my job as a presenter is to get you, get you, get you feeling perky and happy.
0: <laughs> yeah, so you've got the. Um, I've
2: got a job on my hands. stacked I've against You already. You've got a cap saying right from, <laughs> from wrong. That's that's pretty cool. Is that is that something you, that you think a lot about with regards to morality?
0: Yeah, I'm. Well, I'm a bit of a philosopher, really. Um, Yeah, I'm always contemplating um, philosophical questions, and yeah, I enjoy it. And I enjoy connecting with other fellow kind of philosophers and discussing some of these more complex questions, which stems from obviously, and obviously, it's the title of my um, book as well, Right From Wrong. Um, And it was just raising that moral question as that my story presents and and, and faces, uh, what what it stimulates for people. Um, And realizing that crime and punishment and justice and forgiveness are all very difficult and individualistic uh, to what you've experienced to date is the only informed opinion. Have
2: Have you ever read that book, Crime and Punishment?
0: I believe there's a... Oh, I don't know. I feel like so many books are called crime and punishment. But
2: So the thing is, so so it's by this guy, Dostoevsky, right? So that already sounds like, oh, I'm not reading that, because that sounds like insane, because uh, it's Russian literature from the 1800s. But I can't read difficult literature because my brain makes my eyes get heavy and then they shut. But this particular one, and I, I've recommended it to so many friends afterwards... Uh, who don't usually read like literature like that. And everyone's been like, oh my God, it's a page turner. Because it is about a guy who, he wants to see what it's like to kill someone. And he kills an old lady right in the beginning. I'm not giving away a spoiler. And then the rest of the book is about how he deals with the whole crime and punishment stuff. So you've got to get on that. And I'm going to message you in like a month and see if you've started it.
0: I've also not got my notepad on. <laughs>
2: I'll message you afterwards or something. Like Even my brother, who's like... Illiterate. I'm just saying that to wind him up because he listens to these. But he, I think, he likes that as well. So people like that book. It's a good book. But um, yeah, let's get into your into your story. Should we start with Meadows Estate, where, where you grew up? Are you happy to talk about that? And because Meadows Estate is is pretty much a character in your book, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is the um, the backdrop uh, and the context in which um, I form my sense of self. Um, and how I form my values and how I be- behaved in the world. Um, and it, but it's got such a beautiful name being the meadows, you know, being set on the banks of the River Trent, the, the natural floodplains, um, because of the Enclosure Act and in Nottingham. We had a very hip, hip, uh, medieval town. And all the land around it, all the landowners wouldn't release the um, wouldn't release the land to build on. So right up until the eighteenth, nineteenth century, sorry, there was no buildings on the meadows, and it was full of crocus flowers, um, which were used for sapphire by the Victorians. And um, but then eventually, the enclosure at the slums of the Victorian slums got too bad in Nottingham. Everyone rebelled. It's a re- very rebellious city with Robin Hood and um, the rebels who burnt down the Ducal Palace to get um, better rights, which is where kind of that all kind of stems from. Um, and then <laughs> throughout the 20th century, we get um, lots of housing, state council developments, and um, slowly you end up becoming someone like me who, would have hypothetically died for my postcode or even potentially killed for my postcode in the wrong circumstances at the wrong time. Um, for a piece of land that was only built on for about 90 years. And that kind of, that's why I think I'm a bit more of a historian now because understanding all of these deeper things in history. Gives you much broader context on you know why would I represent a postcode that's only been around you know no longer than 150 years max. So, and do I really own this? Is it you know no one really is mortgage owned. No one's really actually. And if you really cared about your community to that extent, to the point you wanted to protect it, protect it, you would um you go around being charitable. You be trying to create community groups you'd be trying to empower young people instead of grooming them
2: well yeah just because i mean that image um, at the beginning of the book about you know you grew up as a child when you were quite young seeing people torching cars and then it was you and your mates doing it 10 years later and it must have seemed weird for you at first when you were a kid like what are people doing And, and i think you put that down to they're just they're not being anything else to do is that right
0: yeah i'd say it's a lack of um a few things really it's a lack of kind of um motivation and aspirations like really low as to what you're capable of as an individual and as a community. And So there's a lot of limiting beliefs. And often I talk about how it's often the whole group that you're in that holds each other back. Um, and often we often talk about older people grooming younger people on the estate, which does happen. But often the younger people kind of groom each other. Um, and limit each other in terms of encouraging each other to like do do different hobbies or sports or going out of your postcode or trying new things or taking the piss out of each other if you express anything different or new and so you're always kind of anxious around each other as to become anything more than what the narrative is for a young person from your estate.
2: Did you feel at all I mean like you're you're parents you, you talked about there being sort of alcohol from a young age and then your dad moved away when you were seven did you feel angry at, at the world
0: yeah i definitely felt angry at the world but i kind of felt just um unknowingly lost <laughs> just almost had the, the road to criminality paved for me for the next 20, 30 years. Um, and so, yeah, I guess it's hard to yeah, see where to go at times. Um, and that anger then comes from just, it's more of a frustration, um, a frustration that you don't believe in yourself and you kind of just hate yourself, but you're depressed about it and you don't want to acknowledge it because there's no one that you can talk to safely to kind of express it because you just get told to man up or, you know, um, lock away everything, not talk about anything. So that's where the anger comes from. I think is more that internal frustration of wasting, wasting your life and kind of not really having, not fitting in in the normal world
2: did you find that uh, sort of masculinity expectations difficult because to talk to you you've got a, a very sort of soft soft mannerisms and thoughtful eyes uh, maybe like myself I might say and and but you grew up um, maybe with those expectations was that difficult?
0: Yeah, but I think any young person has those expectations that are just so like socially like the social anxiety and do you know I'm 30 years old now, so when I was in secondary school, like throughout the 2000s, the noise um, and going into the teens, I was only just getting a phone with a camera. Like when I was in, just going from primary school to secondary, I got a phone with a camera. And then as we got through to finishing secondary school, that's when Facebook was out. You know, like in the social media world, kind of the the whole, it just, like, I kind of feel like I lived through a turning point, like on, like a really weird moment because everything after me, every generation after me grew up with social media throughout their school experience. And, um, I think that's just inflamed it even more, um, but I guess the ex- expectations from me is because I ended up going into like subcultures. So I got kicked out of school, then ended up on the estate. And then obviously I'm just making friends with people who you identify with. Um, and you've been labeled naughty or deviant. And so you're going to hang around with other people who share those same labels. Um, and then you kind of just act it out, um, in, in the world. um, which is a shame because it would be good hypothetically if more people would be able to have the kind of resilience and support to kind of navigate those anxieties around, you know, where you fit in and how popular you are. Um, I guess they all they all apply, but you just everyone's in different groups. And some groups are a bit more supportive of each other. And we'll help each other kind of go, you know what, don't do that, you know, like, and talk you out of it. But then eventually you end up in groups where they're manipulating you or they're egging you on and they're adding fuel to the fire and they're always looking for drama and conflict. So um, it becomes a lot more unhealthy having those expectations and, and then, then it's harder to get out of it because you've been in the longer you're in it, the harder it is for those expectations to change and those behaviors to change because you're, because you're basically forming your identity as a criminal or as a bad man or as someone who's should be respected and then your ego is just off the chart and you can be offended by anything um so yeah um that's a big part of the work I do now is around kind of what you say about expectations and
2: would you say that you guys egged each other on to get into fights and to do more extravagant crazy things
0: yeah it was always just like testing the boundaries like as a little kid you know but just as a teenage adolescence and um, it would just be antisocial behaviour to begin with just out on the streets and Egging taxes or something or I don't know, just trying to get chased by someone. Um and then also stop and search and everything. We used to just enjoy you know, the police harassing us and then it was a game of like cat and mouse, it was like, oh yeah. Because we we're fighting the teachers. And then we we're fighting the police when you left school and then it's just like it becomes this silly game of fighting the system. But it's a hopeless fight you're always going to lose.
2: Yeah, but I I suppose you're not always trying to win, are you? I guess is the objective always to win or is it just to have as much excitement and to sort of uh, go home and tell each other stories about who did who because everyone we've all to an extent I mean I even even me and my very sheltered existence have, when I was 18 or 19 would get into these sort of scuffles and most people have done. and it's like exci- you know you go home after you're like oh I remember I did that thing and you did that yeah, yeah so yeah. it's that camaraderie isn't it as well it
0: is it is and that's how you slowly just like become more and more kind of
2: yeah
0: yeah you can so you can see how easy It is, if you was in the wrong groups. that as you say, your friends weren't going to be the people who were like, oh, let's get into a fight every weekend. Do you know what I mean? But if you were, then you can see those conversations afterwards as to how you kind of slowly it becomes more normalized.
2: Yeah. I had, I had a mate who had an alcohol problem, so it would it would often happen where he'd start, he'd do something, you know, uh, and it would get us all involved. But he never hit anyone back. This was the thing. So, like, he, I don't know what, if it was like he had a punishment thing he wanted, to, you know, he wanted to be hit. So he'd get hit, and the guy would just, like, then walk off. And as the guys walked off, my mate would then shout something else, and they'd come back and hit him again. And then he'd do that over and over again. Oh and I guess God. it's the excitement of it. I don't know what that was.
0: Yeah, that was um something in therapy for, I think.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think he knows that. He's you know, he's doing it right now.
0: As we all do, as we all do. You know, there's nothing to be ashamed about by him, you know? and obviously I don't wanna throw assumptions around there, so <laughs> we'll, so we'll I, have haven't, friend, I
2: haven't named him anyway, so uh, only well, some people could <laughs> <laughs> I
1: <laughs> do not know who he is. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I did meet um, somebody who, in prison actually, um, and they said something about someone that used to pay for um, a, a drug addict and he'd pay people, people would pay him to kick him and punish him and stuff like that. I was like, oh my God.
2: People paid him or he paid them for
0: it? P- people paid him, but that like he enjoyed it as well. So it was just, and then he would fund his drug addiction <laughs> that. Bloody hell, that's
2: low, isn't it? Could they do anything to him?
0: I guess so. And I think he used to ask for four cans as well. Four cans. So they'd pay him like a tenner, and he'd ask for four cans of Stella or something on top. (laughs) (laughs) Instead of the money. No, with as well as the money, like oh, give a tenner and. So he could get his next score, and then four cans of beer to. Wow. (laughs) There was there was another guy. He um, he was so used to being homeless and sleeping rough that. He used to take his mattress off his bed and um, sleep on the bars. And I used to say, why are you sleeping on the bars? And why have you taken your mattress off the bed? would be like, oh, it's too comfortable. Wow. That's so sad.
2: Wow. Do, do you think there are people in prison who are there because they, they, it's actually better for them to be there than to be on the streets?
0: Yeah, 100%. I saw people coming in. Like if you commit another crime, within. Mean, when you get released, you get a 28-day recall to prison. So you come just come back for another month. And people would just have two weeks out, come back for a couple of, couple of a month, have a couple of days out, come back for a month. Like it, I wasn't in prison long, but those people that I saw coming in and out about four or five times.
2: Bloody hell. Oh, I feel so, so sorry for those people. It's, it's such a difficult existence um take me back take me back into the sort of gang culture you got involved with as you you call it sort of defending a postcode uh how did it feel i suppose you thought that those people in another postcode in that like we all get very tribal just must have thought they were just bad people and and what would happen would you get together and go right let's go out and, and have a fight or someone would have crossed over a boundary what would have what's the typical fight scene
0: thankfully for me most of my altercations or some of them were um, gang affiliated were in the city center or around like bars or nights out or wherever we were. But there were people in my group who were more of like that kind of, um, what you imagine in like California movies or something where they'd deliberately be going out with weapons, a couple of cars, private number plates, looking for people from opposing areas. Um, And various things happened. Um, And then other other instances would be kind of where I experienced that it would be when people come down from the opposing Neighborhood in cars themselves, and they'll be like looking for anyone that looks <laughs> like they might be in a gang and living in the meadows. So that that's what was stupid about all this kind of stuff because it was usually people who aren't even like that, or people that are just going on about their business, or the friend of the friend who's kind of only got one toe in the friendship group and just ends up getting picked off or um but then but that was historically me growing up and going through my secondary school school years and i don't know how much social media had to play in this because I, I know i talked earlier about social media at this point and affecting that like, anxiety and stuff but at that time it was more there was more of a community spirit within all young people from, from my neighborhood. And then, and there was a lot more rivalry with other estates. And that had been going on for like 20, 30, 40 years, even before us, like African Caribbean, yardy gangs and drug territory wars and whatever. So we were kind of already grown up like, Oh, that's those lot from the other side, but we'll all look out for each other. Um, But around that time, it started to become more everyone fighting against each other as well as that time with social media. And so it it became that that kind of rivalry feud still exists today, but it's kind of diluted quite a lot. Because even in those areas, they're all fighting each other. It's like three or four gangs now in that one state. And then there's like two or three in the meadows or... And then it even breaks up into just like little tiny factions, you know, like two drug dealers, and then they're just trying to take over the whole state. And then there's like three or four other little groups that are like, you no, know, and you can just see how it just like no one's got any respect for each other anymore. There's no kind of hierarchy or like moral code that guides everybody. It's um it's just a free for all, and that's what I think you see in like especially like London now like you hear about these knife crimes all the time, it's just because no one's got any respect for each other and everyone just, no one feels safe. Especially because how ready everybody is to use a knife. Everyone's like, well, I'm going to get stabbed or I'm going to stab you, so I'm just going to have to stab you first. It's like, what the fuck? But the issue is they do put themselves in situations where they're more likely to be stabbed.
2: And that's the thing as well.
0: That's That's the other problem. Is because um, I was having this debate with a police officer, and I'm kind of against stop and search. But he was telling me he was like, "But look at it from this point of view. If that, there's a lot of look at all the mums and parents who are kids are dying, you know, they don't want knives on the street, and it's our duty not just to look for people carrying knives, but to also protect other young people because it's often young people that are stabbing young people." The young people are the main victims as well as the offenders, and so the police were telling, saying, "You know, you've got to look at it from that perspective as well." We're trying; we have a duty care to other young people to follow up on intel, but at the same time, try and protect other young people as well. Um, But we understand that we're going to lose trust with the community if it comes across as, and, and, and in probably a lot of cases. Uh, in different some areas it will have racial obvious obvious racial kind of bias Um, but that's another discussion I guess but maybe (laughs) later all
2: day talking about that did you ever um, carry a knife or any weapons and stuff like that
0: never carried a knife Um, again I was more kind of I was just a gamer really and a bit of a pothead, and a bit of a dosser. So you know, I wasn't really like a really all-out drug dealer, cap- trying to make as much money as I can and taking out anyone in the process. But I also wasn't confident enough to go into the get, do a CV, try my, try education again, or believe in education. Uh, so. Found myself in that funny spot of not really being in or out um, in that sense. Um, but you were asking. But,
2: but what about, about if you've just carried a weapon before?
0: Yeah, and so that's <laughs> a long way of creating the context as to why I chose not to carry a weapon is because I knew as soon as I did that, it's going to be very likely in the near future that um, I'm going to get sucked in to being a fully-fledged criminal.
2: Yeah, you've got to use it then. That's the thing. If you take it, you've got to be prepared to.
0: I was someone, as I say in the book, who kind of was a bit of a chameleon. I could fit in in every context of like, you know, where it was the the white lot you know skinheads or whether it was the the polish or the pakistani lads or the um you know african caribbean lads or whatever so um i wasn't someone who was actually in that much conflict so i didn't really get pressured into feeling like i had to use it because I kind of got along quite well with everyone. So,
2: so, so what kind of fights were, were you getting into? What would happen to, to cause a fight?
0: Oh, God. Anything that um, was disrespectful, someone would probably say.
2: Someone drops a drink on you?
0: Drops a drink on you. Looks at you funny. Yeah. Um, Stares at you girl. Oh, chat's what you do. Those
2: are the cliche ones that... See, I'd have been scared, like, oh, God, what if I look at the wrong person? Because I didn't want I to... I couldn't get in a fight because I, also i get get um, really bad mouth ulcers, you know, like canker sores, Americans would call them, uh, for Americans listening. And by the way, because you said you were a dosser before, and I was thinking about any Because we've got about 30% of the audience from like, over there, and a dosser is somebody who doesn't do very much, I guess, a, a lazy person, you'd say, uh, just for Americans.
0: And if anyone follows... Um... The Gypsy King, Tyson Fury, he's got a, a, a very big cliche of you know calling Deontay Wada a big dosser, which was uh, yeah became quite a funny term that I've picked up now. So dosser,
2: absolute dossers, all of them. Um, yeah, so Americans they're learning. What was it? Oh, last week they learned. Someone got in touch saying thanks for clarifying because somebody had used the word nonce to describe someone. And I'd say, just for Americans, i will to explain what that was. And someone said, thanks for that because I wouldn't have known. And they wrote it um, N-A-N, like Nance. So I was like, no, it's I uh, I don't want to go into what that is again to everyone for Americans. No, basically. but the thing
0: is, it is yeah. the most horrific thing and um in prison culture, mm. it's like the worst crime morally within the prison community that you can commit
2: yeah now i have to explain explain what it is (laughs) well i don't like using the word because it's not good for the youtube if you use that word but it's uh, the people who who do the horrible things to children that's that's what a nonce is and and i've heard that because we had um it was chris atkins who's who's been in prison as well as on this podcast he said the same thing and it actually was for him he said it was a nice way to be able to feel good about yourself when like you saw those people because you could all get together and be like we're not you know they're below us you know
0: yeah, they're even worse than us. <laughs> yeah. um, Bloody
2: hell!
0: And you're like, so, what what moral high ground to stand on, I guess? Ah, well, you take, you take, we all do it, and you take what you you
2: know, anywhere to make. Yeah, us it's off. like it's,
0: it's like when you see that's why um, gossip in the tabloids is so digestible.
2: Yeah,
0: because everyone just loves going. Oh, look at that!
2: I'm better than them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or exactly. kick it. Yeah. And everyone likes to throw a little kick in while they're down as well, don't they?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, look, that's my, like, the motto on this podcast I all the time, like no judgment, you know, because uh, I'd never want to judge in a way that's like suggest that I would have done a different thing. To that person, if I had grown up with in, in their circumstances and their, you know, so and, and, and with that in mind, maybe we can move on to it. I think I can imagine you're tired of talking about it, to be honest. But for those who don't know yet about your story, there was this one fatal night. You know, could you could you take us through that?
0: Yeah, and um, I just wanted to agree with you that I am non-judgmental, um, even when I feel triggered. I always want to sit on it hold it in rationalize it you know try and inform myself on it and always try and put myself in the other person's shoes because of my story which i'll come on to it's has taught me that and um, so i back in 2011 i was on a night out similar night as to the kind of context we've already set and um Got separated from my friends, um, and then by the end of the night, which is always the worst time of the night and the most conflict, because everyone's the most drunk and they're all coming out of the bars together. Um, I got a call from a friend saying that that he needed help and that there was beef, and to come and uh, come down to help him. Uh, so me being the person I was back then, I was kind of like happy that my friend had called me to, ask me to back him up. Um, but obviously, I didn't have the what I just said then about non-judgmental and a kind of reflective mindset to actually question why I was being called, what the conflict was about, um, whether it was worth arguing over, um, and so I went down to that incident, um, and without asking any questions, through a single punch, um, which not the man all conscious, um, name's James Hodgkinson. And, um, and then I ran away, unaware of what, um, would, would eventually happen a week later. Um, and even then I didn't know that he had passed away a week later, um, from hitting his head on the floor, um, and having sp- swelling on the brain. And so I went about my business completely unaware of what had happened from that single punch. And, uh, Carried on about my business. My friends came around the next day and said, "A bit like what you we were saying earlier about when your friends, you know, talk about what happened the night before." And they were like, "Oh, Jacob, do you remember that punch that you threw? You know what I mean?" And oh, you know, what a fucking punch and all this stuff. And I was just like, "Oh yeah," like feeling proud of it. Obviously, not knowing what had happened, what, what, what would eventually happen at that point, because that was the day after they came around. And, um, and then, yeah, eventually, um, a month later, um, me and some of my friends started being arrested on suspicion of murder for, for that incident that had happened a month previously.
2: Do, do you remember when you were finding out that that he had died, and when you were being arrested, what were you thinking? I mean, because in that situation, you're young and all that. I was nineteen. Right? Yeah, exactly. So you're thinking, like, so, suppose that you know, what, what were you thinking? What what are you thinking when you first find out this guy's died?
0: Literally, eyes just not eyes, life almost just felt like it was on pause. I was in a state of shock. Um. Just utter utter disbelief, but I also realised that because I was in such shock, um, I actually realised I did care about what I was, what I would amount to. Um, so I had like a someone would say it's almost like self pity, but. It was like a real sadness that I'd now let everybody down. Uh, And that I'd like, well, I just assumed that I'd destroyed my life at that that moment. Um, And then after that, because I'm in this little, tiny little police custody cell, I was just like going into like anxiety, panic attack. I was in there for like two days, 72 hours or something in the end. And uh, they just kept putting me out for interviews and trying to get me to confess. And then I was re- replaying everything in my head. like, where could evidence be? Who else did the police spoke to? Is there other statements? Is there CCTV? Um and just like but just, just mind just crazy all over the place. And then like how am I gonna tell my mum when I go home that this this is what I've been arrested for. Um just all that kind of stuff going through your head and I find it really hard to kinda of think about the person I'd hit and their family at that time because I was just so overwhelmed in the, the news i just heard and what I was being
2: arrested for. Yeah. I, I mean, I appreciate the honesty there because I think if you told me like the first thing I thought was "What about this person and his family, I think I might've, I might've been a bit skeptical, you, you know, Be- because I think we like to believe that we like, you know, in, in, in the movie version of your life, it will show you, going oh what about the person and the family and all this stuff but i think that's not real life is it
0: that's some buddhist monk yeah i grew up in the meadows not i grew up in the meadows not you know nepal
2: yeah yeah it's 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 no i think i've i think I, even a buddhist monk would have been thinking that you know self-preservation uh what's going to happen to my life my family what are they going to think what's everyone else going to think and and what bad luck, I suppose. You you went where did you was it so you had your fist and it what what in his cheek, his his nose, his head?
0: Yeah, and his um jaw.
2: Someone hit me in the jaw once. But it just to fly off is it that you hit him that hard or do you think he was he was drunk or something?
0: I think it was a combination of lots of things, to be honest. Um It was really late in the night. It was an unprovoked punch. Um Yeah, so I think that, I think that was the main, the main thing. Really, it's just it was unprovoked, and um, it was just at the end of the night, a very long night. Did
2: did you, did did you think he was he sort of have you know in in the midst of a fight with with your friend?
0: Mm, no, he was. I think what had happened is my friends were just looking for trouble and causing fights, and then rang me to get involved when there was no need to have got me involved because it wasn't a threat and he was just asking for his stuff back. They'd taken some of his things. I, didn't, I wasn't aware of this, but I think they had some, like, fancy dress, costume, things like hats and stuff. So and my friends had took them from the bar and left. And I think he'd come to ask for his stuff back. And then my friends were always going to, used that as a reason to look for conflict
2: in the intervening years um, have you thought more about him and his family
0: oh yeah 100% Um, you know I went to prison I was going for 30 months uh, for manslaughter and um, came out of prison worse than when I went in um, and the only time in prison where I actually thought about them was, um, on the anniversary of the day, um, James passed away, the vicar from the chaplain came and got me from my cell unexpectedly and, um, asked if I wanted to go down to the chaplain with him to like say a couple of prayers and stuff so and that was the only time I actually felt like I could even think about this It
2: um, was it just too hard to think about it uh, uh, what you had done
0: yeah I think it just made you feel so bad like about yourself especially because I didn't mean to do it um, didn't mean for those consequences to come from those actions Um. It was just, yeah, it was just, and then how can you possibly even, but what I used to think, how could you even learn anything from thinking about it? You're just going to like disrupt your own mental health, maybe become even more agitated, more (laughs) depressed and angry. um, But I guess that's the problem with just thinking about it on your own, especially in a prison cell, you know, I wouldn't advise anyone to kind of just self-isolate and sit and ruminate about things that really trouble you over and over again. Um, that's just kind of not a healthy um, strategy. You know? So what I would advise is, you know, for me, what that priest did was remove me from that context of being in the prison cell and put me into a, you know, a holy place space. And I'm not necessarily religious. Um but I'm not as it as the show um proudly boasts, not judgmental either. You know, I, I I also think that a lot of the trouble that we have is that we've lost a sense of faith, um mm-hmm. in modern times. And that's why it's fractured as a kind of community. And if, if we can try and come t- together around another form of faith for those who are atheists um, to help kind of mold us back together a little bit more. Cause I think we missed that kind of ritual of going to church and being a community and doing mass together, you know, just that ritual of people coming together and thinking about things morally. Um, that's what I'm thinking about a lot now is like, how can I create rituals and ways of bringing community together on a regular basis to kind of practice what we lost by not going to church anymore? Because whether you believe in the actual faith itself and the concept of God is, is one thing, but I, and and it's been manipulated in times over time and, and, and got a bad name for itself in a lot of places. Um, but the benefits to communities and kind of the, the moral glue that sticks us together is something that I think is sadly missed. Um, but this man put me in a safe space, um, And, um, I was able to actually think about it and talk about it with someone and not feel as, um, ashamed. That's kind of the first little chink in my armor that got unpicked. Uh, and then when I got out of prison, obviously didn't think about it anymore for the rest of my sentence and got out of prison, was it? Yeah, I don't want to be, be a little sob story or anything, but I was, you know, had no GCSEs, which is like, I don't know what that is in American terms.
2: Um, exams when you're something,
0: yeah, and no qualifications, no education, training, never had a proper job, um, and kind of was very unconfident and socially awkward, so. In that context, <laughs> I didn't have an email address, a bank account, um, a house, or a place to live, uh, and so for so for a while. And I went to go see my probation officer a couple of months after being released, and she told me about, um, a concept called restorative justice and that the parents of the man who I hit wanted to um have a conversation with me and ask me some questions
2: what is restorative justice
0: and I'm um, just a little disclosure I'm not sure if the audio is picking it up but um yeah my son I think has woke up and I can hear him just like pushing the boundaries pushing the boundaries
2: <laughs> <Yeah. go> upstairs <laughs> pushing, but probing
0: but yeah um He's okay, and everyone knows that I'm unavailable uh, for (laughs) now. But where where, where was we? Sorry.
2: Yeah, I was asking what restorative justice is.
0: Yeah, so the way it was described to me um, when I first heard about it was that the people who who, you know I had harmed wanted to ask me questions, and that and that this was a safe space. with trained practitioners um, to facilitate that safely. If um, I was interested, and yeah, basically that you know the, the questions that they had, they wouldn't, they didn't get from the kind of criminal justice system, the courts, and everything. Um, and that the questions that they had, that only I had the answers to. Um, But, you know, just to uh, a bit of clarity, restorative justice, generally speaking, is the coming together of two um, people, usually in a criminal justice context where a crime has been committed. Um, so someone who's committed a crime and the person who's kind of directly um, a victim. And with the aim of everybody being able, getting the opportunity to express their thoughts and feelings, how the crime has affected them, how it's still potentially affects them, Um, and then guiding in a way where there's a kind of mutually agreed way forward that supports everybody's needs for them to either be at peace or to get the truth or to... um, Lots of different reasons why, you know, especially victims might want to engage in those kind of conversations. The um, most common good example is in burglary cases where um, you often paint this picture that there's this monster this, or this demon that you've got to be really careful about and be paranoid about and to triple check your locks and to be up in the night and not get a good night's sleep, actually seeing the person in front of you petrified is um is often really healing for them to actually get a good night's sleep again, and to, for them to s- see that person acknowledging the harm that they caused, and um, that it wasn't premeditated. It was just an opportunistic. You know, you left your window open. You know, I wasn't plotting or watching you for weeks on end, or you know what I mean. So you know, there's lots of different ways that con- these conversations can go that can really benefit. Um, people.
2: It's fascinating that they could turn that into a TV series. They probably can't have cameras in there, but people would watch that, wouldn't they? And and so, what was it? What was it like the first time that you met James's parents? Then, I mean, is there like a security guard there as well? Because presumably there's a fear as well that they would want revenge or something like that.
0: How things usually go is when there's been a request made to take part in restorative justice. Um, some people believe that people who have committed the crime shouldn't be able to request it. Um, and there's different rules in different places as to whether people who have committed the crime can request to have a restorative conversation. Um, but once that request has been made, um, what will happen is... Um, yeah, when that request has been made, what will happen is the restorative justice practitioner will interview both parties and kind of do a risk assessment, um, interview around why (laughs) both parties might want to take part in this, how might it benefit them having these kind of conversations, going through all eventualities with each party before they agree to do it, just to make sure that everybody's prepared for all eventualities so there's no surprises in the conversation. So it'll be, how do you feel about if this person says that um it's you know, something that you don't want to hear, basically, you know, how would you react to that?
2: And what did you? Were you sort of giving stipulations, or were you like just say what they can say what they
0: want? So what I was kind of reassured around is that they didn't. That the reason that they wanted it was simply just to get those questions asked or answered that they had that only I could answer. Um. And that to maybe have a conversation with me face-to-face later down the line if it felt appropriate. And so based on that, I was like, um, I went away for a week, thought about it, and um, and agreed to take part. I was like, well, that's, I guess, because now, that you know, now they were real. Like I'd been suppressing thinking about them, but from that time in prison but now they were like actually real people who had made a real request to talk to me. So I was just like, now I couldn't suppress them like the same way I did. Um, and I knew they wanted to speak to me. So I was like, okay, the least that I can do is say yes. Um, and then I kind of got, yeah, then the conversations kind of went from there really. And we had like a mediator, um, passing on the messages so they get the questions off um, of those guys and um, present them to me and then take like a detailed response of how I was when I answered the questions how long I took to answer them and you know whether I was just a kind of make it as useful for them um, and obviously because they've done a really in-depth interview with them around you know the questions that they want answering and why they want them answering, they can kind of make sure that they prod me for those um, areas that, that are important to them um, to make sure that it's as useful as possible and we can um, have a transparent conversation um, that's going somewhere because obviously there's risk of kind of misinterpretation or you know, the practitioners kind of didn't ask the right questions or whatever like that. So that's why those first initial um, preparation work from the practitioner's point of view is so important to make sure that um, we continue to have high success rates of within restorative justice. Um, and high satisfaction rates from offenders and and victims or it, will, it could become a problem if it was causing more harm
2: Did you did you meet her um, in person the mother or the father as well of James?
0: Yeah I met them both in person um, after those first initial conversations it was about um, it was about two and a half years until they said that they were um, comfortable meeting me face to face. And they actually requested to see me face to face. But what happened in those two and a half years, um, is I gone back into education. And because they said, I, I said to them basically in those initial conversations, I don't really want to say sorry. I want to prove from actions that I actually mean it. And then you can judge me based on that. Um, and they'd also asked me questions. Once I'd answered all their questions, um, they came back with a following set of questions, and then eventually questions like, "So what are you going to do with your life then?" Because we don't want, you know, just for you to have answered our questions ideally, and for you to like not learn from it or to con- like we appreciate that you've answered our questions, but you know we would hope that you're going to try and make some steps to rebuilding your life. Um, and that was just like, a very emotional moment. Um, because it was like, wow, these people, the people that are, the people who I've harmed the most are the ones who are judging me the least, which kind of fit into for this podcast as well.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um, They're looking out for you. And and it was like, well, if they can have some sort of care as to what I do with my life, then I need to believe that I'm worthy of my own care and that I need to ha- have the belief to that I'm capable of making these changes and, 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 and feeling better in myself and dealing with things differently.
2: When you, when you first met them, is it like a handshake? What was...
0: What was that? Was there just emotion everywhere? Were there tears? Yes, yeah, so it was strange because we'd been speaking through mediators and some letters for two and a half years. So I kind of had this sense that I kind of knew them. But it's almost like, I guess you could call it like a pen pal in a very different way, obviously, more like, but the same kind of like concept of like, it's hard to imagine now in a digital age, but, um, it's just having that connection with someone that you kind of not, never really met. And, um, especially because like they were encouraging me to turn my life around and we'd had such a kind of intense connection already, even though we hadn't met. Um, so I was a little bit excited, but was also horror, ho- horrifically anxious. And just like, oh my gosh, I don't know. Even though, even, uh, what if they change their mind and they want revenge now? Do you know what I mean? Or anything. Yeah. Go through, you know, you you get all sorts of like paranoia. But I had faith that I had done everything that I asked of them over the last two and a half years. And at this point, I was actually got a place to go to university that's what the kind of catalyst for his meeting face-to-face was because I'd done my GCSEs again, then I did a access A-level type course at college. And then, so in two years I was already ready to go to uni from saying, and, and I'd had a horrific experience in school. I labeled ADHD, dyslexia, autistic spectrum, bloody, um, you know, the general bad kid, the class clown, you know, the person that can't concentrate.
2: Yeah, you, you, you write in your in your book about how those labels were not helpful. Was um, something that I wonder about a lot as well, when you tell someone that quite early in their life, like, you've got this, they just often will just go, oh, well, then I don't have to keep trying and keep going. Um, although I suppose the other side is with some people, it can help because, it's you know, at least this is why it's difficult for me. So I guess there's both sides of that. But they, so they were excited and happy for you that you got into university.
0: Yeah, they were. Um, no, but, but even then, they said, you know, don't feel like you have to go to university for us, um, because they could see that that there could be that kind of pressure on me to kind of feel obliged to kind of do anything they ask, really, if, if they wanted. <laughs> so that was really nice as well. And then, and then I've just then, you know, as the lad Bible interview that kind of came out and stuff, um, more recently viewers will be able to kind of know that, you know, kind of since that kind of moment, it's been my own internal reconciliation, um, with my with myself that's been the kind of the main part um in me kind of processing all of this stuff that's that's happened um
2: redemption story as well tell tell me what what, what um what are you up to now what do you what do you, what do you do for work now
0: well since i was doing some freelance work and consultancy um working with like senior leadership teams in schools um introducing some of like, restorative practice techniques um delivering coming up with some um uh, interventions and mentoring schemes in particular hard to reach young people um i've put together a few um accredited programs um in prisons in the UK um young offenders institutes particularly um and then a bit of facilitation work um Running some of those prison programs, therapeutic prison programs with men in the group, and as part of that, I'd obviously I'd share my story. Be vulnerable in front of the men, um, but obviously prepare them the same way a restorative justice practitioner would to explore some of their own kind of you know, conflicts and their own um, their own ways of which how they're coping with the guilt or shame that they carry, even if it's not acknowledged yet. Um, and yeah, some of that's been beautiful work and it's been just as useful for me working with them as, as I have, I guess for them. Um, but then obviously, yeah, the pandemic hit. Um, and so I went into a key worker mode and I'm still kind of doing it now. Um, which is delivery driving. Um, which I've actually, you know, at times found really nice, especially when everyone was unfortunately locked down.
2: A lot of delivery drivers listen to this podcast. I think a big a big percentage of listeners are people driving vans and delivery stuff because they've got hours on the road.
0: Hey, so shout just, out to all the delivery
2: drivers. <laughs> <laughs> Get in touch if you're a, a delivery driver or any other kind of long haul driver. Um, and, and get in touch with Jacob and with me. Come and say hi to us. Where, and, and you wrote a book. I mean, which is which is quite something. You know, it's it's not <laughs> no easy project to, for anyone to get uh, to embark on. Uh, right from wrong, my story of guilt and redemption. I suppose people can. You know, I usually would say that. Where do you want people to get it? They get it in the normal places, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Amazon and all good online and in store retailers
2: good yeah people go out and get it because it's an amazing story and yeah Jacob thank you so much for coming on is is there anything I've missed out on that you wanted to to get out there or are you feeling happy with this
0: no that sounds fine Um, I think what's important is that I'm hoping to create more of a community online to do some of the stuff that I've been talking about which you do so thank you um, for creating those non judgmental spaces where people can kind of be
2: vulnerable
0: And, you know, or have a laugh. I know that in this context, this time, you know, we had to keep it a little bit more sensitive and, um, but, um, yeah, happy to kind of explore lots of areas, um, around mental health, um, communication, healthy relationships. And, um, and yeah, the other thing you'll probably find on my socials is nature, um, literature and football. I'm a, although I'm from not- Nottingham. I'm a um, passionate Man United supporter. So sorry if that's put a downer on anyone's uh, judgments of me, but um, please try not to yeah. be g- judgmental. <laughs>
2: Thanks, Jacob, for coming on. It was fascinating to get an insight into your mind and experiences. I hope you guys enjoyed it out there too. do have a look for his book right from wrong, which you can get in all the normal places. And Jacob is also on Twitter. So go follow him and get in touch. Apologies again for the bad microphone quality from my end. I'm still annoyed at myself about that. And hope it wasn't too distracting. Do please leave some reviews on Apple Podcasts, although maybe don't mention that microphone mishap. Some fascinating interviewees are coming up on the podcast soon, including gender-critical science writer Colin Wright, gang culture journalist Monica
1: Biamisar, and con artist podcaster, as in she podcasts about con artists, Sarah Ferris. 18 plus.